Well, we've been looking uh, on Sunday mornings at some of the foundations of our faith. We looked at uh, creation, and we looked at the fall, the fall of man, original sin. I want us to turn again to Genesis 3 this morning and, and look at the reason for the fall. When sin came in, it turned the world upside down. In Genesis 1, God is good. Everything God made was good. And after he finishes making everything in Genesis 1.31, it says he saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So just everything was good when, when God finished his creation. But as you know and I know, we look around at the world, things are not so good. So what has happened to the creation? Well, in Genesis 3, it tells us that evil has come in, sin has come in, Satan has come in, disobedience has come in. And because of that, uh, judgments have come in. But what triggered this inversion and this curse upon the world and the suffering and sorrow that followed, the death that followed. Um, in Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here is the beginning of the fall. It's when the first question is asked and doubt has begun. Did God really say? The, is the word of God clear? Now the serpent goes on and actually contradicts the word that God said, Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. See, now he's accusing God. He's maligning the goodness of God. But he has to first start by undermining the clarity of the command. Did God actually say this? Now, you need, to, you need to think about that. And besides, here's what I think he's, is actually happening. So you have God's worldview, and then you have an alternative but he has to dissolve the first one and undermine the first one to impose the other one, his worldview. Did God really say that? Probably not, but here's what's really happening. 
It's a new truth. It's a different concept, different ideas, and it's brought to bear. So what I want to do this morning is to just take a look at this idea of the Word of God. Satan's first and foremost attack. He has to get... It's like, it's like an army trying to get to your ammunition dump. If he can get that, then he's removed your ability to fight. So Satan has attacked at the very heart of their ability to function, and that is their confidence in the Word of God, the clarity of His revelation. Has God really said? I want to undergird and buttress your your faith in God's Word this morning. This is foundational to our faith, is the Bible. Is the Bible really the Word of God? Is it clear? Is it reliable? Is it distinguished above all other books and religious works? And I want to point out, we'll approach it from three standpoints. First, I want us to look at the accuracy of the Bible in all areas, the accuracy of it. And then the uniqueness of it, that is that it stands out, it stands apart from all other religious books, and we'll even include the Koran in this. So the accuracy, the uniqueness, and then third is the importance of our confidence in the Bible. Let me, let me begin by saying a word about the accuracy of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is redemption, but it, it doesn't just talk about salvation, forgiveness. It also will refer to things like astronomy and biology and math and science. And <clears throat> So my point here is that although it is not primarily a, biolog- a biology book, When it speaks on biology or astronomy, you can trust it. That it does not speak error in science and truth in salvation. It is a book that has no mixture of error within it. In Acts 7.22, it says that uh, Moses was raised up. You remember how he was adopted by the Egyptians and brought in and, and raised by Pharaoh's daughter? It says in Acts 7.22, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So when you open Genesis, you expect to get some w- Egyptian wisdom. The Egyptians believed that the earth gave light to the sun. But when you open Genesis 1, Moses, who wrote that, learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians, didn't write anything about the earth giving light to the sun, but rather that that actually God gave light to both the sun and the earth, and the earth through the sun. 
It is a, it's a divine revelation. Um, the Greeks believed that the earth was suspended in space by, by being held up underneath by one of the gods. His name was Atlas. And you've seen these pictures or sculptures of, of this man who's bent over and on his back is the world. That's Atlas. And that's what the Greeks believed, that what holds the world up literally in their philosophy, and this is 300 years before Jesus came, that they believed that Atlas held up the world. The Hindus believed the earth was held up by a huge cosmic elephant. There was this gigantic elephant. And on top of the elephant was the earth. Now that was their belief. Now if you go back to the book of Job, which is probably written about the time of Genesis, here's what you get. Job 26, 7. He hangs the earth not upon Atlas, not upon some cosmic elephant, but he suspends it on nothing. That would never have occurred to the pagans before Jesus came, early B.C., or the Egyptians, or the Greeks. Psalm 33, 9 says, He spoke it into existence, it came to be, He commanded it, and it stood. In other words, God, by the power of His Word, speaks it into existence and holds it there by that same power that He creates it. Now, that is not an idea you get in any of the religions during the time of Job, during the time of Moses, and yet here is the Bible standing out like a huge, beautiful statue of truth in the midst of the ruins of pagan superstitions. Take this idea of the stars. How many stars are there? Well, one man, this is about 200 years before Christ, he said he knew. His name is Hipparchus or Hipparchus. He's considered the originator of trigonometry. So you probably will not like him if you're a student. But he is considered to be the greatest astronomer in antiquity. He decided to count the stars. So he went out. There were no telescopes. He goes out and he counted the stars and he said, I've counted them twice and there's... A thousand and twenty-two stars. And that number hailed for hundreds of years. Now, Ptolemaeus, I think, came along and upped it a little bit, but not by much. But not until Galileo came along in 1600, nearly 2,000 years later, with a telescope and said... Whoa, 
There are so many stars, I don't think you can count them. Now listen to Jeremiah 33, 22, who lived before Hipparchus by 300 years. Jeremiah 33, 22. The host of heaven, the stars, cannot be numbered. My point here is simply this, that the Bible is not a book of astronomy, but if it speaks, we should pay attention to it. The... The problem with much science is that it reasons apart from the Scripture as if the Holy Bible is irrelevant. The library in the Louvre in Paris has so many science books that if you put them end to end, they would stretch three and a half miles long. And nearly all of them are obsolete. They're old science books that go back decades and even hundreds of years. And almost everything in them has been abandoned by science. The Bible has not been abandoned. It is not, it's simply not been studied. And if you tried to update the Bible every time there's a new scientific discovery, do you know how many times we'd be updating the Bible? The Bible is just stands. It is, it is there. It is real. And let the science catch up to it. And what about medicine in the area of medicine? You know, they used to, in order to heal people, they used to bleed them. In other words, you, have, you get sick, it must be your blood, so they bleed you. They actually bled George Washington. In 1799, he was on his deathbed, very sick. So the doctors came in and they said, um, well, let's bleed him, let's get rid of the bad blood. So they bled him. Well, he got worse. There's a shocker. And then they said, well... Hey, we bleed him again. It didn't work the first time, so they did it again. They did it three times, and he died that night. Medicine killed George Washington. But here's what Leviticus 17.4 says. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You know, you can lose some things. You can lose a foot. You can lose a hand. You can lose your hair. You can lose a lot of things. But if you lose your blood, you die. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Or take, for example, the Black Plague in 1347, the first case. And it lasted for about four years till 1351. It is hard to imagine, it's hard to describe the, the devastation of the Black Plague. Called black because the little, you get these little sores and then they turn black and then you die. Uh, also called the Bubonic Plague. Probably was uh, transferred 
uh, and contagious through fleas and rats and that kind of thing. Well, eight million people died every year during the four years of the bubonic plague. Once it started, it would just kill off everybody in the area. And finally, in September uh, of one year, they, they, in a little village of, called Eyam in England, the pastor of a church was asked to make a decision because evidently the plague had come to their village. And he suggested, and this, is, this comes from Dr. E, uh, D. James Kennedy, he suggested on the basis of Leviticus 13.46 that if someone has a running sore, as long as he has the disease, he should live alone. His dwelling should be outside the camp. He suggested quarantining the sick. And based on that, it brought an end to the Black Plague. They began to quarantine. They said, That's, that works. Once again, the Bible proved to be the medical solution to the ills of man. And so if the Bible speaks in the area of astronomy or biology or medicine, we should give ear to that. Because though it is not the theme of the Bible, it is without error in anything on which it speaks. Now let's talk about the uniqueness of it. We've talked about the accuracy of it. Let's talk about the uniqueness of the Word of God of the Bible. Because here is where Satan said to Eve, has God said, well, and here's what you hear, and here's what is pervasive, is that, well, the churches have the Bibles, the Muslims have the Koran, the Hindus have their holy books, Confucian had his writings. Well, first of all, um, Confucius didn't say he had a word from God. And the Hindus do not say they have a word from God. The closest you get is the Koran. But let me say a few things here, and and then I want to contrast the Bible and the Koran. Jesus himself believed in the Bible, the Old Testament. For example, in Matthew 19.4, he refers to Adam and Eve and their marriage. Jesus believed in the creation story. I think that's significant. He probably would know if they had evolved. But he believed, and he used the word created. To believe in evolution is to believe differently than Jesus. So, there you go. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. 
And he said in the Gospel of John that I don't say anything until I hear what the Father says, and that's what I speak to you. So there is this heavy emphasis in both Old and New Testaments that the Bible is what God has said. And that the Bible is God's explanation for things to give you a background and a, and a philosophy of life to live by. Now, the Babylonians in the Old Testament had a philosophy of life. You have to remember, this is the time when the Old Testament was finished. We were done pretty much with the prophets in the Old Testament And Babylon was like America is today. It was the greatest military power on the earth. The the city of Babylon was the most beautiful, had the greatest renown of any city in the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar the king was incredible. And, And Babylon had a philosophy of creation. And here it is. There was a god named Marduk. And there was another god named Tiamat. And they got in a fight. And Tiamat lost. And so Marduk flattened him out. I mean, flat as a litter. And, and, the, and Tiamat, in his flatness, became the earth. So actually, we're in the Babylonian view of things, and in their holy books... We're living on a dead Tiamat, a god. Now, Marduk, who survived, whom the Babylonians said is the true god, and their holy books all wrote about it, you have to remember, this, is, this was the religion of the world 2,000 years ago, except for the Jewish religion in the Bible. Marduk decided to spit, so he spat. And from his spittle sprang man. That's where men came from. Man decided to spit. And when he spat, guess what sprang from his spittle? Woman. Of course she did. Now that was the prevailing view in heathen creation stories. Well, why wouldn't it be? Now, you open Genesis 1, and there is one view that God created the heavens and the earth, and He made man and woman in His image and blessed them and gave them dominion over the earth. That's one. The alternative view was Marduk. And little gobs of God spittle running around. So there's your alternatives. Now, so in, in the Bible, when you begin to compare the biblical story with these other stories, the one that comes to the surface and is the closest is Islam. It's the Koran because it is their holy book. So I want to put up here some contrast. So, I mean, we can laugh all day at Marduk. 
But Marduk didn't have a billion followers. Christianity today has about 2 billion, a little over 2 billion. Islam has about 1 billion out of 6 billion or 7 billion people. But are these just two paths to the same God? Are we just going up the same mountain on different sides? Is Allah, Jehovah, and Jesus at the same time? I want to show you the two different books. All right, let's put them up here. First contrast between the Bible and the Koran. One is, in the Bible, God speaks. In the Koran, it's an angel Gabriel. God is, Muhammad says in the Koran, it's not God talking to me, it's the angel, God sent the angel Gabriel. But I'm reading through Exodus right now, and I just read this morning, where God comes to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, and God said to Moses. See, in the Bible, it, it claims audaciously to be what God has said. The Koran never does. Here's a second one. In the Bible, the things that are said are confirmed by miracles. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which was declared at first by the Lord and attested or confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. When Jesus would go to the tomb of Lazarus, He raised Him from the dead. He healed the sick. He walked on the water. He healed the deaf. Jesus spoke and taught and confirmed His Word with signs following. And the same with the apostles. The message of both Old and New Testament was given not by word only, but by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, Muhammad says, I have no miracles. They asked him for miracles. He simply pointed to the Koran and said, that's the miracle. But there were no confirming miracles in the life of Muhammad. Number three, the Bible is confirmed by fulfilled prophecies. Now, this is one of the most unique things about our precious Bible. And that is that the prophets, the men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they would predict something. For example, in Isaiah 45... Isaiah in 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ, spoke of one named Cyrus, a a, a Medan Persian king. Cyrus would come, he said, and set the people free from captivity in Babylon. And they would go back and rebuild the temple. And he would not charge them any money. There would be no price, no reward. That's in Isaiah 45. Well, the thing is, Isaiah 45 is written 200 years by all accounts. Even the rabbis say, yeah, Isaiah isn't written in 700 B.C. But Cyrus didn't live till 500 B.C., 200 years before Cyrus ever came along. 
And to the detail, even his very name is predicted. In fact, in Ezra chapter 1, you find the story of how he let them all go back. They weren't even in Babylon when, they, when Isaiah made the, pro, made the prediction. Dr. James Kennedy says that there are 2,000 such prophecies in the Old Testament and in the Bible of names and places and people and events that says they'll come to pass. There are no prophecies in the Koran. I had some Muslim friends who used to attend over at Bristol Road Congregation. They were studying medicine and were interns at McLaren. And they, they started coming to church over there. So I bought them all a Bible. And uh, they in turn bought me a Koran. And I still have it. And I've read a lot of it. But um, I want to give you this verse. This is from Isaiah chapter 41. Listen to what God said. This, this is one of the unique things about the Bible. Isaiah 41 verse 21. God says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, <laughs> says the king of Jacob. Let him bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are that we may consider, that we may know the outcome. Or declare us things to come. Hey, God says, bring forth your case. Let's hear your arguments. Here's, one, here's the first one up. As he says, he challenges the gods of the nations. He says, can you tell of things to come? Make your case. If you can't, sit down. Shut up. There are no prophecies. Listen, there are no other books that come close to the Bible unless you use the Koran. But are you going to go with something that has no miracles no prophecies, and does not say it's the Word of God to us? Number four, in the Bible, it is full of confirmable, detailed history. Confirmable by outside sources. Detailed. Listen to this. This is just one example of this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's a historical point. That all the world should be taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's another historical point. And all went to be registered to his town. Joseph went from Galilee. There's a reference. To Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is also called Bethlehem. See, that's just history. The details are amazing. There are no historical references in the Koran to confirm it or deny it or disprove it. A fifth difference is that in the one you have, the Bible way of salvation is grace. In Islam... And I see these precious women come in Starbucks, and they come in and they're covered from head to, head to foot in black, and they got these heavy scarves on. And I want to say, oh, God, please, 
Is this your favor with God? Is this what you're doing? And see, I know that Islam has the five pillars that you, that you hope to go to heaven. They don't have a doctrine of assurance. This is what you do to go to heaven, but you cannot know for sure you're going to heaven. And that is, first, you agree that the Allah is God. You f- and then you fast, and then you give, and then you make a trip to Mecca, and then you pray five times a day, and then hopefully you'll go to paradise. How different is that from what John says in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John? Behold the Lamb which takes away the sins of the world. Why does the world want to take the Bible and attack it and malign it and accuse it and criticize it and tear it apart? Because it is the way of salvation for us. And, and then flood us with all the promotion of other religions and godless ideologies that will only condemn our soul. Number six, it says in the Bible, Jesus is the Son of God. In the Koran, and it's very clear on this, it's not just wrong and error, it is blasphemy. God, Allah, has no sons. You know what He has? Slaves. In fact, the word Islam is the Arabic for submit. Do what you're told. Allah has no sons. You try to pray to Jesus, the Son of God, or bring up Jesus, the Son of God, in the presence of a good Muslim, He will walk out on you. They won't even debate someone if they, if they start using the, uh, Jesus as Son of God. And you are not sons of God, you are slaves of Allah. That's the message of the Koran. But, 1 John 3, 1, Behold what love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children or the sons of God. Hallelujah! So glad I'm a Christian. Not proud, not arrogant like you people are fools. I have the truth, but rather, thank you, Heavenly Father, for the grace that has come to me. This is straight out of the Koran. It says, All the most beautiful names that belong to Allah, call on Him by them. Leave the company of those who deny them. He is Allah, of whom there is none other or whom there is something. I'm not sure what that is. He is the king, the holy, the one free from all defects. He's the giver of security. He's the watcher over his creatures. He's the almighty. He's the compeller. He's the supreme one. He's, glor- he's, um, he's high. He's above all. He's Allah. He's the creator. He's the inventor of all things, the bestower of forms. To him belong the best names, all that's in heaven and earth. And he's the almighty, the all-wise. That's right out of Surah, or chapter 59, verse 23, in the Koran, their holy book. 
What is the one thing missing? Out of all those names, Father. And Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and He says, When you pray, pray like this. Father, Father, that is your privilege. That's how our Savior taught us to pray. And that's the difference in the Koran and the Holy Bible. Oh, I love this book. What a book God has given us that has been written down for our faith. Further, Jesus in the Bible is a crucified Savior. But in the Koran, Jesus is not crucified. Now I ask you, my friend, is that two paths to the same God, one where there's no cross and one where there is a cross? Now you tell me because that's your faith. But I hold that with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, he says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7, there is not another one who, uh, there are those who want to trouble you and distort the gospel, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached, even if an angel from heaven, up there, and he comes to you and he says, it's a different gospel, Jesus not crucified, let him be accursed. For we have said before, and I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you've received, Let him be accursed. There are not two ways to God, one with a cross and one without a cross. There's only one way to God, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I would ask you to go into Saudi Arabia today and say, hey, you know what? In America, we let y'all build mosques and everything is cool, and we, we love Muslims in America and I'm sure you want to reciprocate here, we would like to build a church. They will kill you. I am not kidding. (laughs) Well, that is true. If I was preaching this in, in Iran, you would not, this would be my last sermon. at least publicly. One other one. Jesus is not crucified in the Koran. And in the Bible, you have a resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is not resurrected in the Koran. There is Jesus. The Koran does talk about Jesus. But he's a prophet. And the Koran says that the Jews thought they crucified him, but it was somebody else and they they made a mistake. It wasn't Jesus. But the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what a contrast to the the leader and the primary prophet in the Koran. 
There is no resurrection of Muhammad. He is buried this day in the mosque of the prophet in Medina in Saudi Arabia. And there the pilgrimages gather hundreds of thousands around his grave site every year. Glory to God. We gather around a risen Christ every Sunday. They gather around a dead prophet every year. Now you tell me which book is precious. Now, why is this important? Well, I think you're getting the idea. Let's, let's make three or four applications here of why this is vital to us. One is for the pastor. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that it's the Word of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration, so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible helps all of us to be equipped to do the work. Also, it matters to those who have lost loved ones. Because 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, If we believe Jesus died and rose again to them which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with Him. In other words, they're with Him, and when, God, when the Lord comes back, He's going to bring them with Him. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 It comes from the word of the Lord, the promise of a resurrection and a hope. It matters to, the, to Satan whether you believe the Bible or not. It matters to Satan. Ephesians 6.17 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. If you go to fight somebody, I think it matters to your opponent whether you have a sword in your hand or not, or whether you go unarmed. So he he wants to disarm you before he fights you. And finally, it matters to sinners. 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flesh is like grass, and the glory of man is like flower of grass. There are some of you here today, you're so pretty. But all f- flesh is like grass, and your beauty is like the flower. It will fade quickly. Your youth will fade quickly. And you're going to need the gospel. And here is what he says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached. See, why is it important we hold this precious book as without error, as we we hold it with absolute confidence and affection, because within it is the gospel preached. If we lay down our Bibles, we're removing the ground for the gospel to be preached. And you're going to need the gospel. In 2 Peter 1.17, give me that last one. <clears throat> Peter says, we were on the holy mountain and we heard Jesus, we heard the Father speak from heaven. Remember when on the Mount of Transfiguration they heard God speak? This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says something amazing here. He says, we have, verse 19, we have something even more sure than that audible word, the prophetic word that has been written down. Oh, man. And we've got one. More valuable than the audible word, Peter says, is the prophetic word that 
we would do well to take heed to. I like that. It's a light in a dark place. So Satan comes to Eve and he says to her, Has God really said? Ah, she should have said. You bet he said. He's made it clear and abundant. And here's the precious word that he has said. Get behind me, Satan. Because God has said. See, until he... Until he can get you to think, well, maybe God didn't really speak a clear word and everybody's kind of on their own. And Then after he's removed your confidence in the word of God, then he comes and he says, God's not good to you. He wants to restrict your life. He knows that you'll be like him and he's not got your best interest at heart, so why don't you go ahead and sin? So he removes a conviction of God's Word and replaces it with the ideas from his evil heart. Erwin Lutzer has a book about Hitler in World War II. Erwin Lutzer is a tremendous pastor in Chicago at Moody Church great author, written so many things. And he's done a lot of background work on, uh, on what led to World War II and, and the Nazi uh, people of the SS soldiers in Germany. He says one of the things he found out was that there was a 30-point plan that Hitler had and his minions had come up with to impose on all the churches in Germany. 30-point plan. Here's point 13 of Hitler's plan for the churches. There must be an immediate cessation of publishing and distributing the Bible. That's point 13 in his 30-point plan. An immediate cessation from publishing and distributing the Bible. Point 14. There must be a fervent promotion of Mein Kampf, which is Hitler's autobiography, as the greatest of all literature. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I'm in the World Olympics team in sprint running, too. Or something like that. <laughs> but it's, when I read that, I thought, that is exactly Satan's plan. First, there must be, he's got to get you to doubt the Bible, ignore it. Just ignore it. Hey, oh, yeah, yeah, you got a Bible. Just leave it right there. It's fine. It's good. It's good. Now, if you want to know something, ask your friends. Now, maybe I should check the Scripture. No, 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 no. You don't understand it. Just leave it, just leave it alone. It should, it's a, Satan's knows that's a sword. And he'll get cut if you start reading it. 
So just leave the Bible. You go to school. Talking to a young student, he's about to go back to school. He says his professor marked him from an A to a B simply because he believed in God. So there's going to be pressure brought to bear on you because I believe the Bible. You're going to be ridiculed. You are a fundamentalist. And you're going to be compared to the worst Westboro Baptist Church. Oh, I bet you're one of those that stand out there with signs when the soldiers are killed. It's crushing. It's devastating. But, dear friends, we cannot give up this holy book. Whatever Satan brings against us, here we must stand. This book we believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us this day to be true to our heart, true to our convictions, true to your word, and help us, I pray, to dismantle the powers of darkness by using the word of God in, in all its beauty and unity and authority and bless this congregation as we go forward in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.